gets up. Yeah. It's so obvious. It's so obvious. I only had a brain. <laughs> <laughs> And welcome to Emerald Roots, official podcast of the Irish Family History Centre and the place to find great chats on all things Irish, family and history. I'm Caitlin Bain and this podcast is for anyone who's ever wondered, am I Irish? What does Guinness really taste like? Who's your one? Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Emerald Roots. I am Caitlin Bain and I am here with Fiona O'Mahony and Kaylee Beelan, my co-hosts of this podcast. Hello, Hello Caitlin. So last episode was our first ever episode and... Um, Exciting. Yeah, it was fun, wasn't it? It yeah. was. Yeah. I mean, I had fun. I don't know. Oh no, I think we all had fun. I think we did. Yeah. <laughs> it was so cool to be able to talk mm. with you guys about this stuff and then put that out there in yeah. a sphere that people can like take and learn from. So. Yeah, absolutely. Today we'll be exploring Bruce Springsteen's Irish roots. Widely regarded as one of the greatest songwriters of all time, Bruce Springsteen is an American singer and songwriter and one of the world's best-selling artists. During a career spanning six decades, Springsteen has released 21 studio albums and sold more than 140 million records worldwide. He has earned numerous awards for his work, including 20 Grammy Awards, two Golden Globes, an Academy Award, and many more, I'm sure. Springsteen has been inducted into both the Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's received the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama in 2016 and is the recipient of the Woody Guthrie Prize, which honors an artist who speaks out for social justice and carries on the spirit of the folk singer. He is an acoustic storyteller, a folk revivalist, and a voice for the American working class. Nicknamed The Boss, he is known for his social and political commentary, themes which are rooted in the struggles faced by his own family of origin. Bruce Frederick Joseph Springsteen was born in Long Branch, New Jersey, on September 23, 1949. He is of Dutch, Irish, and Italian descent and grew up Catholic in Freehold, New Jersey. His mother, Adele Ann Springsteen, worked as a legal secretary and was the main breadwinner in the family. His father, Douglas Frederick Dutch Springsteen, born 1924, worked various jobs, including bus driver. Springsteen also has two younger sisters named Virginia and Pamela. Springsteen struggled to fit into the rigid structures of his Catholic schooling. Growing up hearing fellow New Jersey singer Frank Sinatra on the radio, he became interested in music at age seven after watching Elvis Presley perform on the Ed Sullivan Show. His mother rented him a guitar soon after for $6 a week. But it was in 1964 when Springsteen saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show that he became inspired enough to buy his first guitar and begin his journey to superstardom. The music icon enjoyed a difficult relationship with his father Douglas, who suffered from mental health problems throughout his life. Thankfully, they reconciled after the birth of Bruce's own children. But it is safe to say that this relationship, and the man himself, inspired Bruce to write some of his most profound work. His songs offered a hard look at the life of the working class. He sang of joy and of pain, and once said, I have spent my life judging the distance between American reality and the American dream. 
Drafted at 19, Springsteen avoided service in the Vietnam War after he failed the examination due to a concussion he suffered after a motorcycle accident two years prior. His behaviour induction also reportedly made him unsuitable for service. Hardly surprising then that one of his most iconic songs, Born in the USA, is in fact a critical look at the hardships faced by the Vietnam veterans upon their return home and not the patriotic anthem that people often mistake it for. The best music, he once said, is essentially there to provide you something to face the world with. But would his ancestors agree? On the 8th of November, 1853, three Irish sisters stepped off the Arctic SS in the port of New York. Single file, please, ladies. Keep it moving now. Watch your step. Hey, boys, can we get some help with the bags here? Anne Geraghty, the eldest, was 14 years old, Catherine was 12 and Eliza 10. They were on their way to rejoin their father and brothers in Freeport, Monmouth, New Jersey. These are Bruce Springsteen's Irish immigrant ancestors. Originally from the parish of Rathangan, County Kildare, the earliest evidence we have for them are records that in October 1823, a young Christopher Geraghty was incarcerated in Nace Jail under the Insurrection Act. This is a special session held on this day in October 1823 before Mr. Bennett KC, Mr. Scholes, assistant barrister and 16 of our most respectable barristers. We first bring to the attention of Mr. Bennett one Christopher Geraghty of Rathangan, County Kildare, charged under the Insurrection Act. Mr. Geraghty, please stand. The Insurrection Act was passed to stem the spread of political unrest as famine, fever and poverty led to a rise in agrarian protest against evictions, rent and tithe demands. In 1827, Christopher Geraghty and Catherine Kelly were married in Rathangan Catholic Parish, County Kildare. They married on the 6th of February, before the start of Lent that year. According to Christy Geraghty's obituary, the couple had eight children born in Ireland. James, Mary, John, Michael, Christopher, Anne, Elizabeth and Thomas. They are Bruce Springsteen's great-great-great-grandparents. They often say there is nothing certain in life but death and taxes. Using land records, we found the Geraghty family home in Mount Prospect Townland. The annual tax charged on the house was 10 shillings, indicating a small house, one storey with probably no more than two rooms. Such a low tax rate tells us that the house was built of perishable material, probably cob, which is a clay mixed with straws or rushes and a thatched roof. The house would have had an earthen floor. There was probably an open hearth in the main room where all the cooking was done. The Geraghty's had survived the famine, but their future lay overseas. In 1851, Christopher Geraghty left Ireland for America to search for the most likely place for the family to settle. He sailed aboard the Favourite, part of the Tapscott American Packet shipping line. American packets were medium-sized ships transporting passengers and freights across the Atlantic. Onboard accommodation was minimal, and the duration of the voyage could depend on the weather. Christy Geraghty was one day sailing from Newfoundland when a storm at sea carried away the main mast. The ship was forced to turn back after a perilous journey docked at Liverpool. Christy Geraghty re-embarked, this time aboard the Mary Carson. We find Christy, aged 46, in the passenger lists. 
He was travelling with an Edward Garrity, aged 27. Edward was too old to be Christie's son, but may have been a nephew. On the 23rd of May, 1851, the Mary Carson arrived in the port of New York. During his first six months in America, Christie Garrity worked as a longshoreman. In 1851, he fell in with Daniel H. Ellis. Ellis employed Garrity on his farm in Monmouth, New Jersey. Christie appears to have found work as a carrier on the stagecoach and wagon train routes connecting Monmouth County. By patient saving, Christie purchased a small house and lot on Mulberry Street in Freehold and sent to Ireland to his wife and children. Christie Garrity obituary published in the Monmouth Democrat, 28th of August 1884. Meanwhile, Catherine and the surviving Garrity children were home in Kildare, Ireland. The Garrity house is no longer standing. The evidence of the valuation office records is that it was down by 1887. The Cobb house appears to have melted back into the landscape. There are no remains on site and the foundations lie hidden in a field given over to agriculture. After three years living apart, the Garrity family were finally reunited. They must have been overjoyed to be together again in New Jersey. They began to make plans for their future. Around this time, Christy Garrity secured a contract with the U.S. Post Office to carry the mail from Freehold to New York. In September 1853, Christy sent in his declaration of intent to naturalise as a U.S. citizen. The family's happiness was short-lived, and in 1855, Mrs. Catherine Garrity died, tragically, still in her 40s. Life is for the living, and so, in or around 1858, Christie remarried and started a second family, Ellen, Jane, David Daniel, Thomas and Teresa. He remained close to the adult children of his first marriage. We know this because in the 1860 census, we find daughter Mary Garrity, then 30 years old, living with her father, his new wife and infant daughter. Another married daughter, Mrs Anne Fitzgibbon, lived next door to her father for the rest of his life, demonstrated by the 1860, 1870 and 1880 US census, suggesting their close bond. Anne Garrity, born in December 1838, is Bruce's great-great-grandmother. In 1871, Anne's husband, John Fitzgibbon, died, leaving a large family and Anne a young widow. But in 1873, Anne Garrity Fitzgibbon remarried to Patrick Farrell and had twin daughters, Amelia and Jenny Farrell. When Mrs Anne Farrell died on the 3rd of October 1923, her married daughter, Jenny McNicholas, registered her mother's death. Jenny was Bruce's great-grandmother. Something worth noting is how music played a huge role in Christy Garrity's life. He was a keen musician and played the fife. According to his obituary in the Monmouth Enquirer in August 1884, he was described by those he knew as a good fifer, always willing to do the fifing for anything that came along. A fife is a high-pitched wind instrument, easy to carry. It is not improbable that it was part of Christie's luggage on his journey to America. In Ireland, he would have been regularly called upon to play at local events, such as dances, marriages, wakes and even political meetings. 
In America, Christie was said to have played for Captain Mount's Monmouth Blues. He was also called on to provide music at political meetings, in processions and at picnics. Not unlike Bruce Springsteen himself, who supported and performed for President Barack Obama and President Joe Biden during their presidential campaigns. Christy Geraghty, born 1806 in and Kildare, died on the 25th of August 1884 in Freehold Township, New Jersey. His obituary in the Monmouth Democrat paints a picture of a musician, a man very involved in the community he settled in, and someone with a keen interest in politics. Like father, like great-great-great-grandson. He always took a warm interest for the success of the Democratic Party. Down to a recent period, he played the fife with a drum accompaniment at the head of all the democratic processions of the town. And in this capacity, his face became familiar and his fame went abroad throughout the country. Christy Geraghty, who made his way to America in the time of hardship after the Great Irish Famine, could hardly have imagined that his great-great-great-grandson, Bruce Springsteen, would become a musician of world renown. But it's tempting to think that, as a fellow musician, he would have got a kick out of it. This April, the Governor of New Jersey issued a proclamation announcing September 23rd as Bruce Springsteen Day. Maybe this Springsteen Day will play the fife to honour Christie. And welcome to Diamonds of the Diaspora. Our spotlight on Ireland's exotic global descendants. I'm Bridget McCone, editor of Irish Lives Remembered, the official online magazine of the Irish Family History Centre at Epic Museum. Today, our first featured diamond, Rodolfo Walsh, father of Argentinian investigative journalism. Part 2. The Life of Rodolfo Rodolfo Walsh, great-grandson of Irish immigrants to Argentina, was born on a farm in La Marque, Rio Negro province, but quickly moved to the bright lights of Buenos Aires, doing odd jobs from office worker to dishwasher before working his way up to a flourishing journalistic career from a humble proofreader. Walsh initially sympathised with the 1955 Revolución Libertadora coup against the democratically elected president, Juan Perón, because the populist Perón government had cracked down on dissidents and altered the constitution. However, Walsh quickly perceived that General Aramburu's government, the military junta, was no better and in 1957, he published Operación Massacre on the illegal executions of Juan Perón's sympathizers. Though Truman Capote's 1966 book, In Cold Blood, is often credited as the first non-fiction novel, with Capote novelizing his true crime investigation into the Clutter murders through imaginative reconstruction, 
Rodolfo Walsh actually pioneered this form with 1957's Operación Massacre. Using novelization to more vividly convey the terrors which the executed men had endured. In the years of brutal military junta which followed, Walsh would become a crusading voice for Argentina's disappeared, desaparecidos. In 1973, he joined the Montoneros, radical guerrilla rebels, in whose struggle his daughter Victoria and friend Orondo were killed, before Walsh himself came to disagree with their tactics and commit to fighting dictatorship with words instead of guns. In 1976, Walsh created ANCLA, Clandestine News Agency, which, like the Soviet Samizdat, got around the censorship of the dictatorship by creating an information chain of hand-copied and circulated underground news and information. For as Walsh declared, terror is based on a lack of communication. Rodolfo Walsh would give his life for the struggle to bring truth to the people of Argentina. And we will speak more about that next time. I'm joined now by Bridget McCone. She's the editor of Irish Lives Remembered, which is our official magazine for the Irish Family History Centre. Bridget has been the editor for the past year. Yes, around a year now, yes. How are you finding it? Uh, Very interesting. Definitely every issue is new. The type of stories that are submitted, the type of focus that we end up having on the different corners of Irish history. It's a huge topic. It is. And it's it's such a varied magazine. I mean, I I work with Bridget Mm -hmm. on the magazine as well. And I get lost sometimes in just reading them, <laughs> you know, um, because it really does have a bit of everything, doesn't it? It's It's got the regular columns where mm-hmm. you've got Fiona Fitzsimons doing a Dear Jeannie column where she mm-hmm. helps people with their brick walls in research. But then we also have the feature articles that deal with um, Ancient Ireland mm-hmm. uh, by Eamon Kelly, mm-hmm. who was keeper of antiquities for the National Museum for a while. And his articles always blow me away. They're so mm-hmm. interesting. We also have a range um, of other bits and pieces about new record sets available with Find My Past. And and we also have, we often have reader articles as well, which mm-hmm. I find fascinating too, because it is really an example of how everyone has a story to tell in Definitely. their family history. What would you say is your favourite thing about working for Irish Lives Remembered? Hmm. I think hearing stories you don't otherwise hear. One of the things... I wasn't so familiar with family history before I came. I knew more cultural criticism and general history. And one of the things that's so fascinating about family history is that you get to hear about random and representative experiences of ordinary people. So when you hear about someone's ancestor, sometimes you have someone like Rodolfo Walsh who has done something extraordinary in Argentina that you'd never heard of before. But at other times you would hear about an ordinary person, like, for example, his own great-grandparents, who were ordinary young couple, married in Westmeath, lived through what must have been a devastating time with the famine, had to leave their entire homeland behind and become farmers in Argentina. And you think, generally speaking, 
when I study history, I only hear about leaders, generals, celebrities. But I don't think about the experiences of these ordinary people, what it must have been like for them living through the famine, then abandoning everything they've known, going to a country like Argentina where people speak a foreign language, starting all over again, building their own farm, their homestead, their legacy. And then finally, their great-grandson becomes this great national hero. So you have the two stories. On the one hand, this incredible dramatic story of Rodolfo, but on the other hand, also the story of his great-grandparents as representative examples of the kind of Irish people who emigrated after the famine and the wide variety of places they ended up. Absolutely. It, it really is a lens to see mm. the human aspect of uh, history, really, mm. and connecting it to yourself as well and, and empathising with the people, like how these people would have um, felt experiencing these things because fine, it might not be dramatic on a national scale, but it's very much dramatic on a personal scale. And, and they, they can sometimes actually have some of the biggest impacts and like that potentially influence later generations to pick up a pen and try and be that voice for the voiceless. If, you know, that feeling mm. of, of silence, of being silenced has been impactful to his mm. family, it could have definitely influenced yeah. him. So. Yeah, I'm not sure how much he ever wrote about whether he was influenced by the Irish experience. But if you think about the Great Irish Famine, one of the tragedies of the Great Irish Famine was that you had an administration that was worried about wider issues of trade, wider issues of policy and politics, and was not paying as much attention as it could have to the human tragedy. Mm. So it, it's a story about how ordinary people slipped through the cracks, how they became less important than the schemes of the government, the schemes of the regime. And you can understand why you might want to go to a place like Argentina where you could be a homesteader, because the Irish at that time, the peasantry particularly, they were all renting their land. Yeah. So a lot of them were evicted during the famine. So what it must have been like to have your own farm yeah. on the grasslands of the Pampas, to be able to look around and say, yes, I am on the other side of the planet. Yes, I'm speaking a different language, but now I own my own land. I can build my own legacy. This is mine. No one can tell me what I have to do with it. Exactly, yeah. yes. And so I suppose for Rodolfo then, when you see the military junta taking over and you see once again, there is this kind of remote power that is concerned with their own political goals and crushing people and running over people. There's very much a message in the activism of Rodolfo Walsh that everybody counts. He will not allow the disappeared to simply be swept aside in some larger government plan. He wants to fight for their human dignity and their memory. Mm. And that is something that I think could have been influenced by the trauma of the famine as well as by many of the experiences that Argentinians had too. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I cannot wait to hear how this story resolves itself. So. Well, tune in next time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting because half of my family, that is the story of what happened. And again, it's so ironic because we're so used to seeing um, family histories on TV, on various television programs for these celebrities. And yeah. obviously 
their stories seem so interesting and it's you know there's a little bit of your brain that thinks oh that's just because they are this famous person but that's not the case at all yeah, you know everybody has fascinating stories and in their you have to remember history. as well that your own family story is going to be fascinating to you anyway yeah but exactly. I guess you guys see that all the time at the centre oh, yeah. yeah. and doing research projects Absolutely. with people like you you see that like physically like this you know mm-hmm. kind of this person coming in and just having this rich history and and not knowing it until yeah. they actually start uncovering it absolutely yeah. so and yeah you don't need to find a castle for your history to be really meaningful to you you know i it- know but i want one <laughs> <laughs> i want a vineyard doesn't mean i'm gonna get it <laughs> as we all do but you know even i'm not looking for much just one you know just one we've got tons of them in ireland i'll have one with or without a ghost i don't mind yeah all I you just... need to do caitlin is buy a big field okay with a rune in the middle Mm-hmm. It'll just put you back a couple of a couple of million. Okay. And you can well, have your very own castle. There you go. Well, that's not going to happen. Yeah, we better make some more podcast episodes. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe for the 100th special. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have a castle by then. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's what I really loved about listening to this story was, mm-hmm. you know, it's there. It's there waiting to be uncovered, mm-hmm. you know. Absolutely. And um, yeah, yeah, it was and- really special. Yeah, and and whether you uncover a castle or a field or a shop or even just a name mm. or just a document about your ancestors, I think it it's so special. It's such a special moment. And yeah. Everybody has a family history. Family history is for everyone. Obviously, it's easier for some people than for others. Yeah. But everybody can start their family history and you never know what you're going to find. Every yeah. person is connected yeah. and every person comes from somewhere. Yeah. And the thing that... I really like that Fiona often says, Fiona Fitzsimons is um, genealogy is the democratization of history. Yeah. You know, everyone has a family history mm-hmm. and they're all as vital as, as each other. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you everyone again for listening and thank you guys for sitting down with me. And uh, next we'll be actually sitting down with Fiona and Helen and talking about their process, you know. So see if we can get any tips or tricks from them. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Obviously, we hope you're enjoying what you're hearing. (laughs) We hope you're still here. Yeah. Um, (laughs) If you have any thoughts and opinions on what we've discussed today, absolutely send us information. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. It's Irish Family History Center is the social media account that you will find us on. Uh, make sure to use the hashtag Emerald Roots Podcast. And yeah, we'll talk to you at the next episode. High five.